This is We Are Netflix, Netflix employees talking about work and life at Netflix. I'm Lyle Troxell, and on this episode of We Are Netflix, we've got something special. You will never be fully successful in the long run unless the people here reflect the people you serve. Recently, Netflix invited best-selling author Brene Brown to our Los Angeles office to discuss her research on courage, vulnerability, diversity, and inclusion in the workplace. Brene talked with Verne Myers, head of diversity and inclusion at Netflix, in front of a live audience of Netflix employees. Hi, I'm Brene Myers, the VP of Inclusion Strategy for Netflix, as you know. And it is my great pleasure to introduce someone who really does not need an introduction. I'm sure almost all of you have seen, like 38 million people have seen her Power of Vulnerability TED Talk. Yes. Um, I think most of you also know that she's an academic and that she is a professor at the University of Houston, uh, where she holds the Huffington Foundation Brene Brown Endowed Chair of the Graduate College of Social Work. So that's an incredible thing. And mostly we know that Brene has made it safe to talk about all sorts of fabulous things like shame and vulnerability, Brene Brown. Okay. Hey. How are you? I'm great. Have you seen your big, lovely face here? Yes. Driving down Wilshire Boulevard, I was like, oh. holy shit. Oh. That's a big face. All right. So, like, what are the feelings when you see that? Um, excitement, fear, disbelief. Yeah. 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 And not in that order, but yeah. <laughs> fear, disbelief. <laughs> No, I mean, I think what is so exciting and interesting about your work is that you've been able to help us uh, understand that we can have a lot of seemingly competing emotions at the same time. So um, tell us a little bit about like how you got to understanding the relationship between vulnerability and courage, because most people think of those things as being somewhat separate. I definitely, I, I definitely grew up thinking they were separate. I, I grew up, you know, Texan, you're either brave or you're afraid, pick. Um, and so I just kind of grew up with the idea I must be a, a very fearful person because I'm afraid a lot. Mm. Um, and I think as a kid growing up, kind of always feeling on the outside, I became really a really powerful pattern finder. It was kind of a way of moving through the world somewhat safely. Like I could see, oh, this emotion is connected with this way of thinking. If people are behaving this way, they're feeling this way. So I started to really, I became a really good pattern finder. Mm -hmm. And so that just kind of led in a very circuitous, like 12 year degree plan way um, (laughs) to becoming a researcher and a qualitative researcher. And I think when I started doing the research, it was all about shame. And I really wanted to understand shame. And that came back to a moment when I was when I was in college, I worked in residential treatment with adolescents. 
and we had this really difficult week. And I don't talk about this story really very often, so it's interesting. We had a very difficult week where one young girl tried to commit suicide, another girl tried to run away. And if you're living in, if you're working in a treatment facility, residential treatment facility, these are kids who parental rights have been severed. They're growing up in, in treatment. And I was getting my, my degree in social work at the time and working part-time at this place. It was in the Hill Country in Texas, just beautiful, run by these kind of amazing forward-thinking clinicians. And so in treatment, when someone tries to run away, the whole place goes on lockdown. You take shoestrings out of everyone's shoe, tennis shoes so that their shoes fall off if they try to run. It's like a thing where, because it's contagious, that kind of behavior, one person goes, then more kids get the idea. And so... We had this like rear emergency meeting and the and the clinician, the therapist who run who ran the clinical part came up and said, I know you care about these kids. I know you're kind of scared right now because of what's going on in the in the program, but you cannot shame or belittle people into changing their behaviors. Mm. And he kept talking, but I didn't hear anything after that. And I actually made an appointment to follow up with him two days later and said, Do you remember in that meeting when you said you can't shame or belittle people into changing? are you sure about that? And he's like, I, I am sure about that. And I said, but that's the way the world works. Like the way like parenting works. That's the way magazine articles work. That's the way commercials work. Yeah, like, for real. Yeah. I'm like, <laughs> are you sure? And he goes, not if you're looking for lasting, meaningful change. And so I kind of held on to that conversation through my master's and my PhD and then decided to study shame, studied shame got to the end of that, and I thought I was going to do it for six months, and it took six years. Um, I'm really bad at time estimation. Um, really bad at it. Um, and then when I was done with that study and had a real handle on shame, I said, oh, my God, I've got all this data about shame, but inside this data is also the answer to the question about wholeheartedness. So I started asking the question, okay, I understand what shame is, but who are these weirdos that think they're enough. Like, who are these people? Imagine that. Like, yeah, like, who are, where did they come from and what do they have in common? And then it was the moment of devastation where, like, year seven, I realized what they had in common was the capacity and willingness to be vulnerable, mm. which was super devastating. for. I, I thought the answer was going to be wholehearted people have PhDs in shame. I thought that would be the, I thought that would be the answer. Like, I wanted it to be heady and intellectual. Yeah. I didn't think the answer would be like they like themselves and they're vulnerable. Yeah. Like, what kind of bullshit is that? Well, it's interesting because the work that we do in inclusion and diversity, it's really hard because lots of people feel like outsiders, yeah. like you did, right? So I almost want to ask you exactly like where that came from. Um, so I don't come back to that, but one of the things that we have learned you know, I've learned for doing this for 20 plus years is what you discovered about shame, which is that blame yeah. and shame does not change people's behavior. Doesn't keep us from doing it, however, especially in the diversity space. Um, because even when people are trying to be vulnerable, opening up themselves, uh, there's a deep amount of risk involved in being not the good perfect Tons. yeah right person and then you take the risk and then you kind of blow it yeah and then there's a lot of shame that goes with yeah. it and so instead of people sort of evolving their behavior they pull back they when they pull back they don't have access to the information they need 
in order to show up differently, right? And so totally. I think this this outsider thing, and 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 quite frankly, you know, some of the people on the outside have been have been hurt so much. You know, they've been made to feel outside for so much they don't seem to have the capacity to extend that kind of open heartedness. So I just wanted to know what's your journey through this being and feeling an outsider, right? And then how do we how do we deal with trying to be more vulnerable when we know that taking risks sometimes is not rewarded? So you said something that was, I think, the key to the whole thing, which is you want to have the difficult conversation, right? And then you put yourself out there and you blow it and you make a mistake and then you rearmor up and say, screw that, I'll never try that again, exactly. right? So if we could like slow it down and say, okay, you make the decision to put yourself out there and lean into the hard conversation about gender, about race, mm -hmm. about whatever you're talking about. But here's the difference. This is, this is the, the fork in the road. I'm leaning in to have the conversation, not to be right, mm -hmm. but to get it right. So the shame comes when you lean into the conversation in order to be right. Mm -hmm. And then you are, then your bias is handed back to you yes. and you are wrong. Mm -hmm. But that's not the, that's not the why that should drive the conversation. Yeah. The why needs to be, I'm not leaning in to be right. My goal in this conversation is to learn more and get it right. Mm -hmm. Then as long as you stay curious and open and take your armor, leave your armor off, mm -hmm. you can't screw it up. But so many, I mean, like, I have literally taught race, class, and gender yes. for PhD and master's students for 22 years. I have never had this conversation, a single conversation about race, class, identity, it doesn't matter, and not had my ass handed to me. <laughs> I have never not in a chair with DeRay McKesson, you yes. know, it's live streamed to tens of thousands of people. Who, anybody watch that? The this, this, this squirming of my privilege that washed over me <laughs> in this thing where he said, what about this, Brene? And I'm like, uh, like the oh shit white face. Like, <laughs> uh-huh. Never crossed my mind. No, no. It, did, it didn't yeah. cross my mind because it's not a part of my survival every yes. day for it to cross my mind. And so, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's not, you know, and so... But I don't lean into those to, the problem is, and this is, I'm just going to say the, like what my experience sure. is, people lean into them, especially the whiter, straighter, Christian, they lean in to show ally of the month. Right. Right. As opposed to, I'm trying, I don't know everything, I'm never going to stop learning. Right. Right. So the shame comes for the intention. And let me tell you, these are stealth intentions. Oh, for sure. These are not in our awareness that my intention is to be right and show how great and progressive I am. Yeah. These are buried way deep in. We didn't even know we needed that. It's also, I think, and it can be in any group where you're in the up group. Yeah. Is that you actually believe in your superiority and you don't even know it. And so what you're trying to do is prove that, in fact, you are superior. And even though you really don't know anything about this group, 
you're sure you do, you know? And, and oh so God. I love when people are like, no, no, right? Yes, I love when like, people I, are like, cool points. They're like, yeah, so, uh, yeah, I went to that movie and, uh, no, this is my favorite. You know, I've been to an Indian wedding. Do you know Indians have great, and you're like, that's it. That's all you got. You don't know anything else about the whole culture. Yes. You just, you're just going to get a cool point for having gone to an Indian and wedding. And masala. Yeah, yeah like, exactly. Like, like, yeah, it's like, oh what are you God. trying to prove, right? That is, like, we're recording this, right? Yeah. That's good. You should write that down <laughs> and send it because it is almost like I want to be better I at be blackness better. than mm-hmm. you are. Yeah. Like, because I'm white and I know everything. And I do. And I don't even know that I think that. And so that's and I where. I don't know I think it. I know. That's the where. But on the vulnerability piece, right, or the courage piece, let's go with the courage piece for a second because um, one of the things that people think, like what you already said, which is like there's no courage, there's no fear when there's courage, where you know for sure yes. that there is. But how does vulnerability serve us when it comes to courage, right? So how do you get from making yourself like at risk to actually showing up courageous? Because it seems like you're just exposing your weakness. So help me, help us think about that. Yeah, so I, I actually think vulnerability is the prerequisite for courage because I don't, I cannot think of, nor have I ever been able to have thousands of people that we've asked, like, and, and let's not do it rhetorically, like, let's do it in this audience. Give me an example. I mean, the, the definition of vulnerability, just from the data, is uncertainty, risk, and emotional exposure. So to feel vulnerable is to feel uncertain, at risk, and emotional exposure is people may see emotions on me that I don't want them to see and I can't control how they perceive it. them. Yep. Right. Mm-hmm. So give me anybody in here, give me an example of courage in your own life or in anyone's life that you know that did not require uncertainty, risk, and emotional exposure. Like one example. Right. Like we can't come up with it because there is no courage without risk, uncertainty, and exposure. But I see, I think we have mislabeled what courage is. Right. So oh, I think, oh, right. Sure. Right. So once you throw out the definition, you know, I, I'm a I'm a recovering attorney, so I appreciate definitions. <laughs> I, 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 my spidey senses were like, <laughs> right. But once you get to that definition of vulnerability, yeah. what we discover is the stuff we thought was courageous wasn't really that courageous because it wasn't that much risk it wasn't that right so people are like oh that was so courageous well if you're not feeling like (laughs) you know that's then it probably wasn't courage that you were showing i mean no because someone (laughs) asked me the other day do you think netflix was a good idea like and i was like i'm scared shitless so i think so because everything (laughs) i've ever done that's been valuable yeah has been really scary like how do you know if you've given a good talk because I'm slightly nauseous for a day or so afterwards. Yeah. Like, so if you're not, if you don't feel afraid, right. then what you're doing is not that brave. Right. Or if there isn't a cost to it, right. or if you can control the outcome, that's not really courage. It's really not courage. And we've confused it, especially in this political mm-hmm. climate mm-hmm. with blustery kind of bullshit, mm-hmm. hot air posturing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's right. This thing, this thing we yeah, think is yeah, courage. That is, yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Like for me, it's like, what is that movie where like I see dead people? Fifth, fifth sense. Yeah, it's like Sixth that. Sense? Yeah, it's like that because, it, yeah, yeah, because of my research, like I see scared people. <laughs> you know, like no, I do. I like I see, I see how fear shows up in people. I I know, I know when I see the posturing and the puffing up. Like normally, what I say is, you know, it's I usually flags go up for me because I don't think I think people are really dangerous when they're in fear. Yeah, and so I so it's like. That's a that's a fear. That's a person who's scared right now. So be thoughtful. Yeah, you know, be thoughtful because they will crush anything in their way to feel less scared. Mm. And so that's like right now when people. One of the things that triggers fear in other people a lot. That's like a really when you when you talk about diversity, equity, inclusivity. Mm-hmm. One of the big barriers I think we face is nostalgia. You know, like, well, things used to be like this. And so the thing that they're not saying is the way things used to be. And then the silent trailer is when people knew their place. Mm. The way things used to be when everyone knew their place. Yeah. You know, and so. When my group was up. And see, because I think people do. I see the fear, too. And there's a way where um, it's hard for me to respect um, because I'm like, you're pretending to be courageous but really you're smelling of fear so and so I'm I'm I I appreciate what you're saying which is you need to be thoughtful and careful but I sometimes think you're just not fooling anybody but I also see a different motive and a different way of operating which is that people use their power to intimidate other people yeah right but if you go under that why are they using their power that way? And under that is the fear. It's power over is a very, like one of the 16 predictable forms of armor. See, that's what I really appreciate about you. <laughs> that you got 16 of this and four of that. And one million people interviewed. No, seriously, because you know I'm writing a book and I was reading your book, the new one on yeah. um, Dare Lead. Yeah. And I was like, dang, she got all this research. She's a professor. I want to be a professor. Don't I say that, Christine? I was like, mm, I wish I were a professor. I would just dig into the research. <laughs> I you love this? you. <laughs> You're like 600 people. Like, no, but like, how many people do you think you've had hard conversations with? A lot. And, and that's not data? That's data. It's true. That's what Christine always says. Yeah, that's data. Like, it's like, yeah, it's She's data. like, you it's have like, data? I just have data and $125,000 of school loans. Like, I don't think that's, I don't know that that's the upside, that's really, true. and truly. Like, that's true. Yeah. Well, I want you to speak to our folks because we've got a, do you know about our culture memo? I do. Okay. All right. So, you know, courage is in our memo. You all know that, right? Okay. And in when we sort of try to delineate what that means for our culture, we say things like, you know, you are willing to take risks. You are willing to walk risk into truth. Basically, that's what it says, right? And you're like, um, it impressed me as well. Um, however, we are also a high performance culture. Yeah. So one of the things that I have noticed is like the belief in perfection or the desire for perfection is also an impediment to courage because 
and this is sort of perfectionist, right, is the other side of vulnerability, It's right? armor, yeah. It's armor. So we say we're farming for dissent, and some of us do. We say we want to take risks because we want to get to the truth and we want to um, innovate and so forth. But we're also trying to look like stunning colleagues. And in our mind, many people translate stunning as perfect. For sure. Talk to us. Help us. <laughs> oh, my God. Help us. <laughs> Researcher, heal thyself. Um, yeah, you know. <laughs> it's, it's, I can give you all the data, but I can just tell you as a, as a perfectionist and someone that really deals with trying to be a recovering perfectionist, um, it's really hard because perfectionism, I, I think in the next couple of years, we'll actually see perfectionism in the DSM as a, wow. pro, as a process addiction. Wow. Yeah, because it, it really feeds on itself because perfectionism, so if you just look at the data, like mm -hmm. let's just pull ourselves personally out of it and just look at the data. As researchers, what we see is that kind of the opposite of perfectionism is healthy striving or striving for excellence. Mm -hmm. So we see those as opposite sides. Um, people that are really good at striving for excellence or healthy strivers are normally not perfectionistic. Mm -hmm. People who are perfectionistic normally are not great at striving for excellence. And so what happens for us, that for those of us who really struggle with- Do you with want to break that down? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, <laughs> yes. So it's about locus of control. Healthy striving is internally focused. Mm. Who do I want to be? What do I want to accomplish for me? Perfectionism is driven by one thought. What will people think? So it's, 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 I think you might want to repeat that. Yes. Okay. So healthy striving or striving for excellence is about what we want to accomplish. Perfectionism is what will people think. Part of perfectionism is the fool's errand of managing perception. So the thing about, if you think about perfectionism, I call it the 20 ton shield. We carry it around thinking if I look perfect, work perfect, act perfect and do it perfectly. I can avoid or minimize shame, judgment, and blame. Mm -hmm. So we use it to protect ourselves. The problem is anybody in here, who in here would say they're perfectionistic or struggle with perfectionism? Like, I know where we, we are, so hands up. Okay. <laughs> so I've seen the perfect trailer and the perfect art. <laughs> like, and FYI, grateful for it. Um, but so for those of us who struggle with perfectionism, Anyone in here avoid shame, criticism, and blame successfully your whole life thus far? Like, yeah, right. It doesn't work. But what the 2010 shield does do is it keeps us from being seen. Mm -hmm. And it's exhausting and heavy, and we carry it around. But here's the real process addiction piece. When, as a perfectionist, I find myself in the grips of shame or judgment or blame, my self-talk is not wow, this perfection thing is just BS. It doesn't work. My self-talk is, I wasn't quite perfect enough. Mm -hmm. Let me double down. And so that just becomes this unwinnable thing. And so what I think is for high-performance organizations, and I work inside them a lot, like here's my conundrum right now. Mm -hmm. I obsess on the brand that is Brene Brown Education Research Group. Mm -hmm. Like I approve every font, every caption on social, any outwardly facing thing. Is it perfectionistic? I used to think so until like I read Phil Knight's book around Nike and kind mm -hmm. of this whole, like when you, when you go into these companies, 
that are that do well, they obsess on the brand. I'm sure y'all obsess on the brand. Mm -hmm. I know you do because yes. we were going to edit some of our own photos, and they're like, "Not if it has the Netflix logo on it. <laughs> You're not going to be doing that." Um, yeah, like I was like, "But we can do that. That's nice. I'm glad you can, but not if it has the Netflix logo on it." So, so how do you how do you obsess how obsess you, yeah. over the brand? Yeah, and want to get it right and be excellent, and not struggle. You know, and so it so. I have a lot of people that are just like me that work with me, and we really struggle. And so the line, I think, is, and this is what I think the line is. I was fueling my team's worst perfectionism until the day I sat down and said, let me explain to you why the font matters. Mm. Let me explain to you why the social captions need to go this way. Let me explain to you why inclusivity in sock photos is mandatory here. Then all of a sudden they have the why. And it's and and because the why for perfectionists, myself included, is always it has to be, be perfect. For some, right, for someone else. Yes, yeah. it has to be perfect. But I never took the time as a leader, and a lot of these people have worked for me five or six years, I've until like this this year to said say, let me take you through the five C's mm -hmm. that I use to look at every single thing that comes out of what we do. Context, color, connective tissue, cost, consequence. Let me teach you why the font matters. Mm -hmm. Let me tell you why representation and stock image matters. Let me, and now all of a sudden, it's not like, oh my God, is it? Is, are you? Are we ready right. to put it in front of Brene? Right. Is it perfect yet? And they're like, you know, they're like, because they're not trying to please you. No, they're trying to fulfill the standard. The that standard. You set. Does yeah. that make sense? Mm -hmm. And so, a lot of times, the perfectionism gets worse sometimes as we go down. Because leaders are not doing a good job communicating. Of, of commu we don't take the time, and we separate people and what they're producing from the mission and the why. Does that make sense? Yes. Yes. Thank you for that. Thank you for that. You know, I'm also thinking about this 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 issue of trying to do it perfectly and how. It visits all of us, but I see a whole other, deeper version of it when it comes to people who are used to being thought of as not as good. For sure. And they come into these organizations, whether it's around race or sexual orientation or gender or country of origin or religion, and you happen to be out of like a group that's on the out or suffers from negative stereotyping or whatever. Everything has got to be so perfect. Every word you say, the way you dress, your hair, your every everything is so tight because you are concerned that the least uh, thing you do wrong uh, will feed the narrative of you as not belonging here, not earning the right to be here, not as smart, not as moral, not as capable. So while everybody uh, is working on this issue, I see a whole deeper level. And in some ways, what I notice is when you say the shield, you can't be seen. So I, you know, in fact, as a, as a black person coming up in the law where, you know, I was like the first black person ever in my law firm. I was like breaking the color barrier. I'm old, but I'm not that old. I was like, <laughs> oh, yeah, no, yeah, yeah. What? I'm the first one ever. But what I realized is that you're constantly trying to project a certain image. Like, yeah, I'm the special, okay black person. 
men, black men in particular, are constantly dealing with, like, don't worry, I'm not going to rob you. Like, that kind of thing, like, constantly trying to allay people's fears. And so, consequently, what happens is that you go in and you try to blend. You try to look like everybody, talk like everybody, and then you disappear. You disappear. And then you disappear. And the amount of work you're doing to cover... Uh, which is a great sort of t uh, concept that Kenji Yoshino from the NYU Law School uh, talks about and has made more pop popular, which is that, you know, you feel a demand, really, from the culture to act, to do your best impression of the people who are already there and in charge and in the majority. And as a result, you get really exhausted. You start compromising yourself. The authenticity isn't there. And it's highly difficult to be courageous because to be courageous is to put yourself out there. To put yourself out there, people might realize that you're a woman, for goodness sake. Yeah. No, yeah. You know, I grew up when lawyers, we had to wear that bow tie. We had to wear like a tie and like button down shirts. Yeah. It was not pretty. Assimilation not. fashion. The assimilation fashion. Yeah. You're like, you, I'm not a woman. You don't need to worry about it. Mm -mm. Just like you, Bob. Nothing, um, under, nothing under here. Yeah. Don't even like, yeah, yeah. And so I think your work is so powerful for everybody. And, you know, as a woman of color from a working class background, who, you know, is like a class straddler and all of that, um, I find it so powerful um, to take back, you know, your humanity and to say to people, you know, hey, I'm going to keep it high. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to aim high, but I'm also okay with being a human being, you know, yeah. with being afraid, with being courageous, with getting it right sometimes, with getting it wrong sometimes, because then I get to feel, I get to be present. Amen. Yeah, I mean, yes. And I, and I think we'd be remiss not to talk about the cost. Mm -hmm. You know, the cost. Because, I mean, that. just to be really honest, I, I just did this interview with Abby Wambach about, for her new book. And she talks about perfectionism and she talks about how imperfect white guys who make a shit ton of mistakes have been leading since the beginning of time. Yeah, yet, so a few mistakes. Yeah, yet we're not allowed to be imperfect. We're not, you know, and, Standard. you know, I, I, so I came across this phenomenon probably, five, I don't know, five or six years into teaching. So the University of Houston, Graduate College of Social Work. So University of Houston is the most racially, ethnically diverse research university in the United States. So my class looks like the world. I mean, yeah. and looks like like my kids went to public elementary school, 51 countries of origin, first generation represented. Like, because we have a big medical center, it's just really. But I saw this particular exhaustion in the black women mm -hmm. in my classroom, mm -hmm. and I started mentoring a lot of black women who wanted to get PhDs after their masters, but didn't think it was for them. Because they really said, well, like, you know, that's like old white guys with coats, right? And I'm like, oh, no, like, me too. Like, yeah. And so I, I, I started doing where I, so I went to the stacks because I was like wanting to understand this phenomenon. And I came across this book called Shifting. I know that book. Do you know that book? Yes. Strategies, yes. Black Women. Yes. yes, Strategies, Black Women, Youth. And then I started reading about shifting. At the same time, I was doing my shame research and I interviewed this young 
black woman lived in Houston, and she said, yeah, I'm trilingual. And I said, and I was like, oh my God, that's great. What do you speak? And she goes, no, just English. And I was like, what do you mean? And she goes, well, I'm a med student, so I speak one way when I'm in medical school. I speak one way with my friends, and I speak one way with my grandparents and my parents. And lest I ever forget and mess one of those up, because if I don't speak this way in medical school, they'll think I'm here on affirmative action and I don't belong here. Mm-hmm. And if I speak this way in front, if, I, if I'm too white in front of my grandparents, that will crush them and they will tell me very quickly, like, Use those words with your white friends. Who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? And shame drives two messages, right? Shame is the vice. Shame drives two messages. It just vice both sides of us. Who do you think you are and never good enough? Mm. And so to live in the... And so, and then what I started seeing is the physical toll. If you look and not... It's just not black women. It's black men. It's, it's, It's underrepresented minorities in general. Like the physical... It's like oppression is the best... I mean, is the most formidable foe you could ever have. Because what is it doesn't take from you, like, while you're watching, it takes from you in ways you don't understand. That's why, like, when I tell, when we talk about the emotional labor to pass, to shift, mm-hmm. like, that shit kills people. Mm-hmm. Like, every day people die from that. Yes. Like, just the stress and the anxiety and remembering and, you know, and the cost of doing the wrong thing in the wrong place. So I think the answer has to be twofold at least. We can't stop working on dismantling the white supremacy issues. Mm-hmm. Like, and there is no neutral there. You are either dismantling that system or by default you are propping it up. Because it doesn't need much. It doesn't, no, it's not, it doesn't it's already, need much. It's already built. It's already built. It's already built. So embedded. Yeah, so you have we have to every day choices, everything we do, dismantle it actively. Or if you're like, oh, I don't really talk about that kind of stuff. Okay. You're a supporter then. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, I, I mean, it just, that's my perspective. That's mm-hmm. my perspective. The same thing around patriarchy. Like mm-hmm. you're either dismantling it or you're propping it up. So I think systemically we have to work on those issues, but we can't lose generations of people that it could take to change those. So yes. at the very same time, I think what companies have to do is put in place mentoring, put in place champions, put in place ways for people together mm-hmm. to come and say, and because power and those dynamics are real. Yeah. Like yeah. they're as real as like that glass of water. Mm-hmm. And if people don't have a safe place to talk about that, um, the price is too high. The price is too high. And so I think high performance is great. I believe in it. I believe in obsessing on the brand. But if you don't acknowledge that there's a system in place already when people come to work here. Yes. That absolutely privileges some. Yes. And puts others at a huge disadvantage. You will never, ever have the diversity of a company. Like, like and this, and for y'all. Like more so than maybe any, maybe a couple of companies where I, that I work with are super global. You will never be fully successful in the long run unless the people here reflect the people you serve. Yes. Woo! You know what I mean? Like you just won't. Like, yeah. So you're just not gonna. It's just. It's just we know it. Like we know it. We we know it. I've been I've been really trying to convince people that uh, privilege doesn't have to be a, a dirty word. If you know yours and use it 
on behalf of others to dismantle the system, right? So it's like yeah. you can't, right? You can't do anything about privilege because the whole idea is that it was unearned advantage created long time ago, weren't alive, you don't believe in it, but you're still benefiting from it. Each of us can find a way every that day. we do it yes. every day. So, so let's not go into the shame game. Oh, but that's, that's. Because that's like an activity. That, that is it. That the is guilt it. That and shame is it. game. And you're like, well, that, that's you're not activity. helping me with that, though. That's not, that's not helping. That's not moving things along, okay? No. Um, and so I'm really trying to get people to just get more, I guess, vulnerable so that they're not trying to push off this reality, but they're on some level embracing it and then figuring out how to use it. And then the other thing that you said, which is that you've got to create these kinds of uh, systems and opportunities and relationships that tries to offset some reality of what exists here. And what I think about is if we want people to take risks, right? If we want people to bring their full self, if we want people to, uh, to be vulnerable, we've got to create the kind of environment that suggests that they can survive that yes. risk. An environment, a culture, a culture where armor is neither required, yes, nor rewarded, yes, yes, and every individual leader is responsible for that. And I would go as far to say, and all of us are leaders. Oh yeah, because all of us have some sphere of influence. Everybody. Some little tiny world or large world that we are in charge of affecting. Um, and, and I really have been talking a lot to people about like, you know, what kind of environment are you creating? Like, uh, even with your words, you know, like you said, we're all over the world now. And like, even when you call a meeting, what time is it? Even when you ask for input from the people on VC. How long do you wait to hear from, them? you know, it's like, oh, and we had some colleagues from um, another country. They're like, we are with you on the VC. You're talking. We're with you. Then someone makes a joke. We don't understand the joke. We know it's a joke. Yeah. But then the conversation starts going really, really fast. And then we are way out now. We have no idea what's happening. And something as small as that of saying, maybe I should slow down or maybe I should think about my jokes or maybe my jokes aren't as funny as they used to be given the fact that we have different people here at this table. Or, you know, so, so all of the vocabulary, the language, um, the patience, um, the seeking of information. But this is something that I think is also really important for this work of creating inclusion, which is the courage to be destabilized by new information. Yeah, what a gift. It is a gift. Destabilization is such a gift. It is a gift. Like, because I think the opposite of destabilization is not stabilization. I think it's impermeable boundaries and atrophy. Mm -hmm. Like if you're not destabilized, you're not freaking paying attention today. Like, like, you know, I mean? like, it's like, we need to be, you know, and you know, it's so interesting because one of the, one of the forms of armor that I wear sometimes when I'm scared is the knower. Like I need to, like, do I need to be yes. the knower? Like, yes. Do I need to be the knower here? Like, and the opposite of armor 
is curiosity. Mm-hmm. You just have to stay curious. Just and like stay curious. That, that example that you gave about the conference call, I was working in a company about a year ago and a guy came up to me and said, I really get so frustrated every time we have a conference call with our colleagues in Hong Kong because we know they have great ideas because nine times out of 10 we'll end up implementing against their ideas, not ours, but they don't share them on the phone with us. And we, I don't know what's happening. I was like, well, what did, what did, what did they say is happening when you asked? Oh, well, I didn't ask. I, I don't want to ask because there could be some cultural stuff going on there. Oh, no. God forbid. Yeah, and I was like, uh, yeah, there could be some, there's probably <laughs> yeah, some cultural shit going yeah, on there. Yeah. yeah. And so he's like, so how, how do you Because frank- he doesn't want to be wrong. He doesn't, doesn't want to be know, wrong. Not know. And yeah. he like, he's like, okay, Hong Kong colleagues, journal, you know, you know, where's the, where's the workbook? Or, you know, like, where's the guide to the Hong in Hong Kong? We, you know, start the call at five and then start with a hello, not a hello. Like, you know, there's no book. Ask. And he's Ask. like, and he said, literally, can you tell me what to say? And I said, I can because I'm afraid for your colleagues right now. So I'll, I'll just say, <laughs> I will help you in this instance. I'll say, just say, hey, I noticed that y'all are not contributing a lot during the calls. Um, what does support look like? Your ideas really matter. And he was like, okay. Oh, that's, yeah. I could do that. So he called, so he, he reached out and said, yeah, yeah, reading from it. And he said, you would not believe what happened. And I said, tell me. And he said, apparently, when we send the agenda 20 minutes before the call starts, they think that's really disrespectful. <laughs> and they think that they must not, that we must not want their opinion if we've only given them 20 minutes to come up with, you know, thoughts about the agenda. That's probably so, in English and not yeah. in whatever they're accustomed right. to. Right. And I was like, so, so what do they say? They said, if you could just send the agenda five to seven hours in advance that feels more respectful to us because then we can bring our thoughts together. We, unlike y'all, are not one to share thoughts that are not formulated. Yeah, unlike y'all, right? Yeah, well, we just, or, like, right, like, right. Introverts and the people in Hong Kong are yeah. my people. Yeah. I know, like uh, our Japanese colleagues are like, and then you guys, re- you repeat things and you say the things that people have already said. We don't understand that, <laughs> right? And you're like, oh yeah, we do. That's it. That's um, a, I'm important. Let me just repeat what you said. <laughs> yeah. Slower. And maybe and I'll like even this. say it better. Yeah, yeah. Um, and give myself credit and not someone the one who initially said it. But um, I guess I wanted to end also with um, your thought about. Um, Something that I have been recognizing in my own life um, and in the lives of my colleagues, which is that in order to get better at creating these kinds of environments where people can feel respected and connected and belonging, um, it's like a contact sport. Full on. Right? You got to get close to people. Yes. You got to have proximity, as D-Ray might say, and a bunch of other folks who have uh, helped us pay attention to that. And we work so hard. We're just like in these little, we're in these little worlds and this is our world and we're not going outside that much. Some of us are outside. Okay. Um, And some of us have families that are very different and diverse, whatever. But it seems that people want to play it safe. And they just, like, they want to read a script that you could give them. Yeah. They want to read a book, but they don't want to get close. And so, because, of course, that could be show vulnerability. Uncomfortable. Uh, yeah. yeah. What do we do in that situation? What do you recommend? I'm at such a bad place where I'm like, 
like my first response is usually, well, this is not going to work out then. Okay. <laughs> um, but that, I mean, that, like, um, you know, where's my quote? Didn't I put my quote? Oh, let me, yes. Yeah, let me read this quote. quote, but I wanted to make sure I got the person's name that said it because um, she was amazing and it has broken so many barriers. Rosalind Hudnell. I was tweeting with her the other day and she's retired now, but she was a CEO and has led DNI before DNI was a thing. Mm-hmm. And she said, if you're not leading a diverse life, you cannot lead a diverse team or a diverse organization. Mm. You know, and, and so like for, for a lot of people, like a lot of white folks are like, what does that mean? Everybody, you know, like, like trade out my kids or like what, what, like, what do I do? Like, and it's like, but this is where I think Netflix is actually super powerful. Mm-hmm. It's consume film, books, do things outside of your world where everything's produced and made by people that look like you and believe mm-hmm. like you. Like, and go to other people, yes. not just bring them into where it's safe and known for you. Yes. Like, explore, invite, know. And this is not just for white folks. This is for all of us, especially for Netflix, where yeah. you're global. Like, yeah. this is like, understand. And and I that's not a chore. That's like a gift. Yep. You know, and I think it's powerful. It's powerful. And I think if you don't want to get close, you don't want to lean in, you don't want to learn, you don't want to explore. The question I would ask first is, what are you afraid of? And the second one is, I'm not sure this is a good fit for you. Because mm-hmm. I, I mean, here, at least here, I would say in order to be successful because of your medium and what you give to the world, you're going to have to look like the world you serve. Otherwise, what you do will not resonate. We will not be able to see our stories in the eyes of the people that you put on the service. Does that make sense? Yeah. You are yeah. amazing. Thank you. Thank you, You're amazing. Thank you Thank so you. much. Thank you. Thank you. We Are Netflix is hosted by Lyle Troxel. He's a senior software engineer at Netflix. You can keep up with We Are Netflix on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. To learn more about careers at Netflix, go to jobs.netflix.com.